So you're effectively being punched for, you know, let's say the first 40 years of my life. Then if people stop punching you because things get better for gay people, you know, because suddenly people can have civil partnerships and then get married, you know, people are sort of like, oh, well, everything's fine now. But you're still quite bruised and battered and broken by all the punches that you were surviving for all of those years. And you carry around those effectively injuries. And so I think I've been reflecting a lot on how things have really, really improved, but there's almost a danger that we can now think, well, I'm okay now, aren't I? Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. My guest this week is Rosie Wilby, comedian, podcaster and author of The Breakup Monologues, a book about the unexpected joy of heartbreak and all we can learn from it. So she was the perfect guest for a chat about how to be sad well. I hope you enjoy the episode. I think I would like to start, um, well firstly BBC Radio 4 described you as the queen of breakups, that's a lovely uh, accolade-ish. Um, you, you start the book by saying if you really want to know about breakups, ask a lesbian. Please tell us more. <laughs> well, it's a slightly flippant and throwaway comment, but there's actually a lot of truth and a lot of resonance behind that because lesbians have the highest divorce rate of anybody and before that, the highest civil partnership rates. And we actually separate at several times the frequency of gay men. And as a gay woman, this, this concerned me a little bit when I read these stats because I thought, oh gosh, does that mean that all... Gay women are sort of destined for a life of heartbreak. But I do think that gay women have, to some extent, negotiated this sort of different uh, relationship pattern and this behaviour that we have and sort of turned it to our advantage in a way, because I believe that queer women, because it was a small community decades ago, sort of older lesbians that I know met in other people's houses in very small social groups, and you had to stay friends with your ex. So I believe that gay women pioneered conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow and long before no-fault divorce, um, or certainly before no-fault divorce in this country. I mean, there are places that have had this idea for a lot longer. And, you know, I just think there is within a small community this sense that you have to try and work things out and have to try and stay friends. So I've seen a lot of gay women doing that. And I think that is sort of the positive side to the fact that we do seem to have a much more serially monogamous pattern of behaviour, something which I think anthropologically, scientifically, psychologically fascinates me. But also on a personal level, I wanted to investigate how I felt about that and it, in a way it was comforting because I thought I'd had so many breakups and realised that I'm part of a group in society where that's the norm, that's common. And so just to clarify, because of this sort of small community, it's kind of to avoid the awkwardness, is that right? So that you just have to kind of make it amicable and make sure that you are able to spend time together in future. Yes, exactly, because you are most likely going to be part of the same network of friends and you're going to see each other, you're going to bump into each other and it's quite likely that your partner may end up 
with somebody that you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, my ex, for example, is now with somebody that we both knew when we were together and that we used to meet up with and have dinner with. And <laughs> and it's, it's great because I always liked this person. So I think she's actually a really great person for my ex to be with, probably better than I was and more compatible and suitable. But <laughs> it's not always easy to, you know, come to that sort of conclusion. It's such a sort of sophisticated, laudable position to be in. Yeah, so I definitely think we can all be learning from that. But I'd love to go back to um, you and I have something in common, uh, having been dumped by email. Ooh. There's nothing quite like it. But but take me back to the beginning of this quest to investigate and understand heartbreak. Was it 2011? Yeah, at the very, very beginning of 2011, just as the new year was was unfurling, I was dumped by email. And at the time, I joked that I felt better after correcting our spelling. <laughs> but of course, as a comedian, we do sort of make light of things. And I've realised I've had to really do some delving and thinking about why I turned to comedy at sad points in my life. And in some ways, it can be a brilliant way of exploring what's really going on. And in other ways, it can be an escape and a fleeing from what's happening and trying to make light of actually very difficult things that we don't want to perhaps process in in the way that we need to. I think there are pros and cons of doing stand-up comedy. I sort of think everyone should have a go at it at some point in their lives because <laughs> it's an incredible challenge and it's incredible feeling when you make a whole room of people laugh. But I do think that, yes, it can sometimes be running away from things because we're trying to create a narrative that is all fun and jolly and ha oh, ha I'm absolutely fine about this breakup when of course really you're not at all but I do think it's interesting how through all of this investigation of breakups I've come to realize that I am more at peace with all my breakups now having delved into the psychology of how we sort of effectively withdraw from a drug and what's going on in the brain around all of that. And I've started to understand why I felt certain ways after breakups. And I've realised that actually perhaps my real sadness, my real core sadness, is not so much about the breakups, but how it felt to be in those relationships in the first place, particularly the one that ended by email because it was an invisible relationship because she was not out to her family. And so I've had to do a lot of unpacking and realise that really my core sadness, even though I, I talk and speak about breakups so much, I think it's all about homophobia and shame and exclusion, which dates right back when you talk about going back to the beginning. This all dates back to feeling excluded and different and bullied at school. So I think when you talk about the beginning, you know, we can create a narrative and sort of the promotional narrative that I've created around the breakup monologues is that it really began with this being dumped by email. But of course, when you start writing and thinking more, and I've recorded more scenes of my podcast since I finished the book, you begin to realise that actually things go back a lot, lot further. I read a, a Guardian piece you wrote, I guess, around that time about how in the media we are more familiar with gay comedians, but lesbian performers still met with a lot of homophobia. You wrote then, I wonder, have things improved? Is that a naive and optimistic point of view? <laughs> yeah, I think the landscape of comedy is really, really changing and shifting, particularly with Hannah Gadsby, who had this phenomenally successful show called Nanette. 
And she was really quite brutally honest and open about how, as comedians, we can use jokes and humour to sort of humiliate ourselves. You know, she says it's not humility, it's humiliation. And so I think that's forced a lot of us to investigate what we're doing. And yeah, it's it's so interesting. But we do see now so many kind of young queer voices who are really fantastic and, and diverse voices and diversity in, in broader senses around race and disability and gender identity and all kinds of things. And, you know, age as well. Um, you know, lots of young comedians, but also um, recently we lost Lynn Ruth Miller, who was the oldest working comedian in the UK, who was this wonderful character who was still on stage well, well, well into her 80s. And I was delighted to have her on my podcast talking about sex and dating in your 80s, which is just brilliant. So I do think there's a lot more diversity now. And that that is a really good thing. But I suppose what I've really been starting to think about a lot and haven't really had the chance to talk about, I suppose, so much is the sort of legacy of of trauma and shame and how I was trying to think of it like, you know, when you are bullied at school and, you know, people are saying horrible things to you and you're sort of effectively being punched, even though there may not be many people sort of landing physical blows, you're effectively being punched for, you know, let's say the first 40 years of my life. Then if people stop punching you because things get better for gay people, you know, because suddenly people can have civil partnerships and then get married, you know, people are sort of like, oh, well, everything's fine now. But you're still quite bruised and battered and broken by all the punches that you were surviving for all of those years. And you carry around those effectively injuries and so I think I've I've been reflecting a lot on how things have really, really improved, but there's almost a danger that we can now think, well, I'm okay now, aren't I? Because I am, you know, due to get married <laughs> for the first time ever, which is fabulous and is really exciting. But I'm also reflecting on how sad it has been to be unequal, to be different, to have that path just not available at all and you can sort of use that in celebratory ways you can think right I'm going to think about relationships differently and very consciously and I'm going to experiment and be a bit of a pioneer and think about non-monogamy and think about different ways of having relationships which I've sort of written about in my books and you can look at it that way but also you know there, there is undoubtedly a sadness about not having a certain path open to you and having certain choices blocked off to you. And I've written and spoken a lot about sort of just feeling like I just missed out on motherhood as well and sort of feeling too old to have kids. But knowing that people just a few years younger than me have felt able to and have felt that has opened up that lesbian parenting is now a thing. I don't know for sure I would have wanted to be a parent, but to have felt like that was just not available to me there is a certain grief and sadness involved in that. And how do you cope or process with that uh, that sort of disenfranchised grief? What, what has helped you in that way? Um, I think just solidarity and community with other LGBTQ people and 
also other groups of people who feel excluded as well. You know, I'm aware that things are difficult for everybody. The particular area that I, I often speak about and look at is homophobia and, and queer identity, of course. But I'm, I'm aware that there are other people who have it, you know, who've had it hard as well. So I think just knowing that there are those other stories, those other experiences where, for whatever reason, you know, other people have been have had challenging times as well. So we're all in these different states of, of privilege and status in in the world, you know, and, and those are complex and uh, fluid often as well. You know, we can sometimes start off in life, you know, I, I was sort of a middle class child with uh, fairly affluent friends. I mean, we lived in a more modest house, but there are times in my life, you know, since becoming a comedian where I have struggled financially and, you know, I sort of felt that I sort of went down in the world, particularly when I came out and I was gay as well. And you really feel like you're an outsider and excluded. So, yeah, but I, I think this these things are fluid. I'm now in a position where I, I can get married and I live in a very nice house with my partner and we have a dog and a cat and we sort of live this very different life that I can celebrate but yeah, you know, it's it's. I think it's a case of being aware of everybody's stories and knowing that it's you know it's not just you who's who's had a hard time. But <laughs> sometimes you forget because you're so engrossed in your own story and you're so well so consumed in trying to accept it and come to a place of acceptance about the bits that have been hard. And you write about being an only child in the book. And I also grew up uh, the, the only child. And I wonder how, how much of an impact that has had. You compare that to the, the bullying, that you see a link between the two. Yeah, I do think there's a certain loneliness to being an only child, particularly when I grew up in the 80s. And so it was something that was a bit unusual. I think it's becoming more common now for families to have one child and I do think there was something about you know all my friends having that often an older sibling who seemed to protect them from the bullies and I really missed out on that feeling that sense of protection because I saw it in so many examples around me. And you talk about that longing for connection that can make us perhaps more intense in our relationships because you're you are as you say looking for something. I wonder how how that has played out in your relationship. Yeah, well, I think in gay women's relationships in general, there is a huge sense of intensity. And, you know, this sometimes results in a lot of jokes about lesbians and how we sort of move in on the on the second date and get 10 cats. And <laughs> of course, they're jokes, but <laughs> there is a certain truth behind that. And we do move through partners in this very intense way. That's why we do seem to break up, even though, yes, we, we stay friends, which is nice. And in a lot of cases, uh, we do seem to have this kind of huge intensity that we bring to partnerships because we're almost looking for that person to be absolutely everything, be our lover and our best friend and our therapist and our work colleague and <laughs> do absolutely everything together. Whereas I know when I have kind of had friendships with heterosexual women, 
there seems like they can have more of a separation where they have their husband who is their partner for many, many things, but they also have their best friends, their girly friends who they love in a different way. Whereas I think it's harder if you're a gay woman to have a separate best friend who's not your partner, because why isn't your partner your best friend? (laughs) So Interesting. So the expectations are different. I think so. Yeah. And what about then the Venn diagram? Have you mentioned that that lesbians are statistically more likely to divorce. And then you also mentioned research from Ohio State University found that only children are more likely to divorce, but only by 2% I was relieved to see. So the Venn diagram, I mean, yeah, just feels feels like a lot. Do you have any theories as to why why you think lesbian relationships end or, or they are serial, serially monogamous? I think it may change. I, I think it probably will. And I think a lot of it has been to do with not being able to have children. And I think we do see many couples who have children, you know, perhaps staying together. Well, in some cases, maybe when they shouldn't, if they're not happy, you know, there's a lot of an argument for for a conscious and compassionate and good divorce, if that is the best thing. Um, So we shouldn't necessarily be framing this in the sense that staying together is always good and and breaking up is bad, because (laughs) I've certainly celebrated breakups in in my book, you know, when when a relationship is causing you pain. It's it's actually a very freeing and transformative and joyful experience, ultimately, to then discover yourself again and go on new adventures in the world, make new friendships. But I, yeah, I do think we will probably see those statistics shifting somewhat and we'll see lesbian partnerships lasting longer as people have more settled families. But I also think that women culturally and socially have expectations placed on them about how we are supposed to be the guardians of the home and fidelity and we are not supposed to stray or fall in love with or fancy other people so i think there's a more like there's a more of a chance if a woman was attracted to somebody else that she might actually leave her partnership rather than necessarily have an affair or act on that attraction i think we can tend to judge ourselves quite harshly and think, oh, gosh, I quite fancy somebody else. So obviously my primary partnership isn't working anymore. Whereas I think men have a more compartmentalised way of viewing (laughs) this and maybe they would act on it and have an affair. And we sadly know that that does often happen. Um, And we live in a patriarchal patriarchal society where men have often felt that they sort of have permission to do so. Um, So I think all of this um, cultural baggage that we have as women is sort of that effect is, you know, multiplied, squared, if you like, when you get two women in a partnership who come with all this cultural baggage and the cultural baggage of being gay as well. And sadly, we also see um, much higher incidences of common mental health disorders like depression and addiction and, and drinking and, and all of these kind of things in the LGBTQ community. So you're more likely, sadly, to have two somewhat traumatised people in a relationship together. And this can sometimes form a sort of quite toxic, addictive situation where people know the relationship isn't good for them, but they just can't leave. They want to sort of fix it and solve it. That's fascinating. Goodness. And I read you wrote about SSRIs a little bit. So the, yeah. um, the antidepressants. Tell us about the impact that these can have. Well, SSRIs, I mean, it's so interesting how we take all of these chemicals in our lives that we think are nothing to do with our relationships. Um, and I spoke to, well, a 
a chap called Brian Earp, who is a neuroethicist. And great name. I know. And he is working with Yale University and also spends some time over here in the UK as well. And he's written a book looking at the idea of love drugs and anti-love drugs. So whether in the future we might be able to take a pill that would help us stay in a relationship or take a different pill that would help us to get over a breakup. And so it's a bit like a sort of real life version of one of my favourite ever films, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where the two characters erase their memories of one another. And it's sort of almost along those lines. And we always thought that was science fiction, but perhaps it isn't. Perhaps it's going to become a, a truth in the not too distant future. But I think this is so interesting because we're already taking these chemicals that are impacting our romantic lives, our connection and our feelings of attachment to our partners, particularly SSRIs, which can have this effect of sort of distancing us from a partner, which is really, really interesting, isn't it? Because if you were depressed in a relationship and then the result of taking something to help you with that actually made you not connected to your partner anymore and made you want to break up with them, then... (laughs) That, that might be a sad um, situation to find yourself in. There's, there's all these discussions, I suppose, you need to have around that, about what is your true emotional state. I've been in relationships mm-hmm. where people are, people are on, or off, on and off antidepressants and their feelings about the relationship and how committed they are to it changes dramatically. And they don't warn you. I think when you go to a doctor's surgery, and I've been on antidepressants myself, and they will say sort of that they may dampen libido, but nobody ever says it's an anti-love drug. That's never one of the side effects listed. Yeah, we don't talk about that. Fasc- yeah, it's, no. so, it's so fascinating. But they have done experiments where they have found um, that it, it can make us feel less connected. And there are lots of people report sort of falling, in inverted commas, out of love. That's amazing. I'm always interested in as well in people who get together, I guess, heterosexual women using the contraceptive pill who get together with a with a different, a different kind of altered state hormonally where you are thinking that you're a little bit pregnant. So you're looking for a nurturer rather than somebody whose clothes you necessarily want to tear off. It's fascinating. (laughs) It's so fascinating. And women's attractions change just during our menstrual cycle as well. So the face shape that we're attracted to alters depending on whether you're ovulating or or menstruating and so on. Okay, so what do we like at different stages then? Oh, now I I can't, I haven't um, read this just recently, but I know that we do like a different sort of shape, a different, like you say, um, when you're on the pill or off the pill, that affects it as well. And it is to do with exactly what you just said, whether you're looking for a nurturer who's going to bring up children with you or whether you're looking for you know, the hot, sexy lover who's going to sort of impregnate you with the with the healthiest sperm, you know, who's going to have the, the most handsome, amazing <laughs> child. Because I suppose in a very basic animal evolutionary sense, it's not really about, you know, having the child of the person that is going to help you bring it up. I mean, there are 18 Amazonian tribes, apparently, that believe in partable paternity and believe that, you know, the woman should have sex with more than one man and that the sperm is all mixed together to form a sort of <laughs> multiple a cocktail. Yeah, cocktail, yes. Whereas actually that's not strictly true, but there is this sense that there's this group and collective responsibility for the child because they all were part of creating it. <laughs> Amazing. Sarah Sarah Pascoe's book is, is fantastic on that. Yes, for anyone who hasn't yes. read it. 
And it's interesting you're talking about the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and if we could erase our feelings towards someone because you also have talked about post-traumatic growth when you have your heart broken and how important that is, how it all contributes to who we are. I'd love it. Mm. I think this term gets bandied around a lot. So I'd love in in your your interpretation of what post-traumatic growth is. Well, I think it is reinvention and transformation and finding the joyfulness in rediscovering yourself. I think we can get lost, particularly when we're in relationships, particularly when we're in relationships that have external challenges, like the relationship I was in where homophobia was was hugely problematic because we couldn't be open about the fact that we were together. We couldn't move in together and do all these things that we normally see as markers of success and movement forwards in a relationship. So I think to some extent there was, when the breakup happened, even though it was awful you know it was a real shock and loss and I was completely bewildered for really some time partly because I felt I didn't know the full truth of the situation and whether she was seeing somebody else already and that can really really play with your sense of self and security and so I think I had become somewhat addicted to the relationship and and had to go through a withdrawal process but then ultimately I was in a better place because it hadn't been a healthy relationship. I mean, she was, you know, a good person, kind person trying to do her best in the world as well in a very challenging and difficult situation. Um, So it feels hard to know where to direct your anger because I know that it wasn't really her fault that the world is a horrible homophobic place. (laughs) It's getting better, of course. We have acknowledged that it's getting way, way better So I think it is all about sort of running away from the old self whilst also acknowledging and celebrating it, but growing and and healing and learning. And I talk at the end of my book about kintsugi, the Japanese art of repairing pottery with the gold lacquer and celebrating the breakages and the repairs. And I think it is something about celebrating that damage that you've been through, but the fact that you've survived it, that you've grown, that you've developed a sense of resilience which you kind of have to do as a comedian anyway because some of some of the terrible gigs you have to have are one of the are some of the ones you learn the most from about how to improve your delivery or your writing and you have to go away and go back to uh, back to the drawing board um so I think as comedians you learn resilience and you learn those skills of reinvention quite quickly because you have to to survive and I think to some extent that is what post-traumatic growth is in in a nutshell it is like when you've had a terrible comedy gig but you go back to the drawing board and you rewrite your set and you're brilliant and funny the next time and you feel reborn and rejuvenated (laughs) a wonderful explanation yeah okay so it's, it's getting better after after a tough gig okay and studies show that we bounce back from these breakups twice as fast as we predict we will which I love the idea that it may seem awful but it probably will be awful for a shorter amount of time than we might anticipate. Yeah, that that was definitely quite an optimistic and hopeful study, wasn't it? I mean, I do think you have to take studies with a pinch of salt because (laughs) in some ways you can say whatever you want to say, can't you? That's true. I mean, I do joke um, in the book, there's early on, I talk about um, the pressure to sort of sleep together as a couple and the fact that sometimes my partner and I sleep in separate rooms if if I'm getting in late or she's getting up early or we've got different schedules or the dog and the cat 
want to sleep with us and take up the entire bed. Um, <laughs> and so we talk about how there's a survey about how many couples sleep together and how they feel about not sleeping together. And there were, yeah, a high number of couples that reported greater relationship satisfaction sleeping in separate rooms. But I did note that that survey was done by a bed company. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that stigma. That there, there does seem to be a big stigma around that. It's a sort of, you may sleep worse together, but for your relationship, you just have to stick it out. <laughs> I think it's it's tricky, isn't it? There are so many pressures about what a relationship is supposed to look like, what it is supposed to be, the narrative that it's it's supposed to play out. And we do have this pressure to stay together long term and, and assume that it's going to be forever. We celebrate wedding anniversaries with this sort of ascending hierarchy of gifts from sort of wood and paper up to diamonds and and rubies. The good stuff. Yeah, yeah, all the good stuff. Whereas sometimes actually having a conscious breakup and, and moving on might might be a really healthy and celebratory and brave and powerful thing to do. But yeah, equally, there are these pressures about how we should sleep together every night. And I don't think I agree. I think my partner and I are now finding a balance where we do try and sleep together at the weekends because we want that connection and having Sunday morning, you know, with the dog kind of cuddling us and <laughs> and just that nice kind of, OK, we don't have to jump out of bed and immediately start working or checking emails or unloading the dishwasher or we haven't got people the ringing glamour. the bell with <laughs> deliveries or who knows what um well yes the glamour well yes I don't know the cat has probably been sick or something you know it's not always glamorous <laughs> is it that early morning shock as you begin the day but yeah, I think it's nice to have those weekend times where you can sleep together but we often sleep separately during the week which I think is quite healthy. I think it's okay, but we don't really talk about it, do we? <laughs> no, it's good. You're being a trailblazer on this. This is good. And and you also say that most splits are because of stuff that happens in the bedroom or stuff that doesn't. It's <laughs> it's sex and it's one or both people have sex with someone else or they stop having sex or you, know, you want to have sex with someone else. It, I was really interested to read that according to surveys again, but that women are twice as likely as men to become bored of a partner which feels right, but isn't what we see reflected in Hollywood movies mm. or any of that stuff. It's so interesting, isn't it? This this cultural idea that we have about women and how that is completely wrong. I talk in the book about participating in a sex lab, <laughs> which was a fun chapter to write. And well, my next question, <laughs> tell me everything. <laughs> so I've always been intrigued by these experiments that I've read about. Um, and mostly I'd read about them happening in the US. I don't think they often happen here in the UK, where participants are shown erotic images and their genital arousal is measured <laughs> by, if you're, if you're a woman, a plasithmograph, which I call a techno tampon, which probably gives you a better idea of what it okay. is. It's something that you insert that is, is kind of plugged into a load of computers, basically, um, that is measuring your lubrication, I believe. Um, oh. And yeah, if you're a man, I think there's a little sort of rubber band um, that you can... <laughs> Can, high tech <laughs> place over the genitals 
<laughs> so, yeah, and it's it's in a way it's quite a crude way of measuring arousal, isn't it? Because it's I believe a lot more sophisticated than that. But they're also measuring your pupil dilation, so you have to sort of sit and have your eyes lined up with a camera, and also you're reporting your arousal, which is so interesting because. Pretty much all these experiments have shown a disconnect that women have about their actual arousal and their reported arousal, whereas men have a direct connection between the two. When they're turned on by something, they acknowledge that they are. They know they are. They're aware of it. I mean, I guess physiologically they they are, right? Whereas women sort of have placed their sexual identities and orientations into these neat little boxes And they don't realise that maybe their sexuality is way more broad and vast than that. So you get a lot of women that go, yeah, I'm gay, I only fancy women, or I'm straight, I only fancy men. But actually, most of these studies have shown that women seem to be aroused by pretty much everything, even the sort of David Astenborough nature clip that you get shown in the middle (laughs) um, that's supposed to be a control (laughs) clip to calm you down. What's happening in the control clip? Remind me. Um, it, it is a nature documentary uh, presented by David Attenborough. <laughs> oh my goodness. What, what animals? Uh, well, it wasn't even animals having sex. I think it was something, I think it was, there was a little bit of some uh, birds on a cliff top, like some Arctic terns or something like that. And then sort of... But sexy terns. Yeah. yeah. And okay. then some grass growing on the sort of African savanna. You know, so it's, it's sort of not really sexy stuff, but... It's so it's so interesting that women, you know, we, we, we've sort of bought hook, line and sinker, these cultural myths about what our sexuality is supposed to be, because it has served the patriarchy to propel these myths, really, about the fact that women are more faithful and all of this kind of stuff. Whereas, actually, we're not. <laughs> we're just as restless. And, you know, we in a very evolutionary sense i think as we've hinted before females are probably meant to have sex with a, a wider group of males for the sort of the benefits of sperm competition and then yes you would probably settle down with one male to bring up your children but even in the bird world there have been experiments done back to the terms uh, yeah well in blackbirds actually there was once an experiment done where a group of male blackbirds were given vasectomies to see if their mates still got pregnant and they did <gasps> so female blackbirds okay. were still at it Cheating. with other men blackbirds yes <laughs> wow so A scandal exactly so i think we have to sort of throw away some of these ideas about how I'm not saying that women are all at it and cheating, but these ideas that women wouldn't even want to in the first place is really not fit for purpose. <laughs> yes. And and tell me about is this linked to the, the sexologist John Money's love map? Is this the ideas we have about our own sexuality? Uh, yes, I mean, that that's interesting as well. And as you say, I bring this into the book as well, the sort of template of our sexuality that seems to be laid down in our early years. And I talk about having crushes on uh, kind of unavailable women because when I was younger, I didn't really meet other gay people. So you you form your first attachments to, you know, unavailable heterosexual women. And so <laughs> to some extent... Or George Michael in my case. Oh, God, George Michael as well. I stand by that one. Oh, my Great. God, yes, yeah. I loved George. And in many ways, I think George is the only man for me ever. And perhaps the fact that he wasn't available to me is 
you know, that's perfect in a way. And, oh gosh, I've always played lots of George Michael songs in my shows. And he almost symbolises that sense of sadness and unavailability because I used to talk in one of my shows about the woman that I'd had a crush on at university. And so when I spoke about the moment she appeared wearing Doc Martens with a little flower painted on the side and Tipex, the music that was playing in the background was a different corner. Nice. 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 <laughs> and and I think it's very interesting thinking about how hormones have a big impact there as women as well. I, I read Miranda Sawyer's book, but you mentioned how she talks about the perimenopause and the menopause can make you want to just destroy what you have and go and sleep with the gardener or something <laughs> yes yeah what's what's your take on that now the the differences at different life stages that we experience I definitely have heard a lot of stories about women in that early 40s stage when we are in perimenopause because perimenopause goes on for a long long time you know at least a decade so I think in your early 40s particularly if you haven't had children the hormones are going crazy and saying you know why haven't you settled down with someone and had children you know so I think we do seem to fancy a lot of inappropriate people and I definitely felt in an absolute state of chaos in my early 40s and I've calmed down a lot now that I you know met my partner in my mid 40s and things are changing and calming down settling down but I was really struggling with perimenopause I was having very frequent migraines which were awful pretty much every month when I had a period, I had a completely debilitating headache. And I would try and go out and do my gigs and find myself sort of, you know, being sick after I'd come off stage because I was in so much pain. And that is really wearying emotionally as well when you feel physically so, so bad. And yeah, around that same time, you know, after I'd had a, a bad breakup and was dealing with that, I suppose, I would find myself I did get into a relationship with somebody too soon, but I'd find myself really feeling intense attractions to other people and really feeling guilty and feeling confused by that. But I definitely felt there was a chaos going on at that particular moment. And I've certainly heard a lot about women having affairs or leaving their husbands, leaving their marriages at around that time, because everything's it really... <laughs> in a very complex state. Haywire. <laughs> and oh Rosie, so you were you were experiencing migraines, perimenopause, had this bad breakup, going on stage talking about breakups and doing your podcast around breakups, and then also then meeting your new partner. Was was that sort of slightly was there it's a disconnect between talking about breakups and heartache a lot and then trying to foster this new relationship? It's really interesting. When I first met my partner on our first ever date you know she was asking about what I what I was up to and obviously she knew I did comedy and I said well I've just I just published this book I've just finished writing this book and she was like what's it called and my first book was called is monogamy dead which <laughs> is a great you know thing to chat about on your first date isn't it and I was trying to explain that I wasn't really saying that everyone should not be monogamous. I'm quite a fan of monogamy, but I do think we need to interrogate what it still means in this society where we have Tinder and we have this real impatience. We're always looking to upgrade our partners a bit like we upgrade our mobile phones. And funnily enough, I do think there's something in this idea that we can 
uh, we, you know, we have this contract where we can choose to get out every two years. And I actually tend to stay with my mobile phone provider. It's probably the longest relationship I've ever had. So having this illusion of of freedom, of the chance of escape is maybe quite a good thing because <laughs> perhaps we do choose to stay and it's just easier. <laughs> and there was a study done where I think about a quarter of young people said they would like marriage contracts to work like mobile phone contracts in that way. That's extraordinary. I know. Yeah, but, and because people are marrying later and having children later, there is this sort of extended adolescence. Your 20s are, are kind of... Uh, what you might have been doing in your teenage years historically so yes is well what did you conclude is monogamy dead no i don't think so at all but <laughs> i do think there are different ways of of looking at it because we've altered our meaning of monogamy anyway it originally came from the greek meaning monos gamos one marriage for life whereas now we we tend to mean one marriage at a time because whoever <laughs> <laughs> whoever we are whether we are gay or straight you know we we often have one really deep important committed relationship um, and then maybe have another one so you know there are, might be different people for us at different stages of our life now that human beings live such long lives much longer than we originally were supposed to when our you know these these very primitive animal systems by which we're governed you know were, were you know developing and so in some ways our psychology our brains are a bit behind you know the pace of change in in our lives the pace of change of technology and how we can connect with lots of different people one of my first ever big, big breakups was catalyzed by the fact that uh, my partner at the time had reconnected with an old flame on friends reunited <laughs> if you can remember wow, that those were the days <laughs> I know so yeah now I think we just feel there are so many possibilities and that fuels a sense of of impatience and I think it is harder to stay together but I still think yes monogamy is absolutely something we can celebrate and we can choose but equally there are lots of people having open relationships having ethically non-monogamous relationships that for them works really really well I don't think it's for everybody I think it's hard work and complicated because suddenly you've got more than one relationship to tend to and think about and from your experience and your interviews what would you advise a friend now going through heartbreak well I would absolutely say reach out to your friends and I think if you can spend time with people who will build you back up again and give you some sense of agency in your life and ownership over your life and you can start doing things for you that make you feel good whether that's getting fit um, I, I know people who've had a breakup and then become a triathlete you know having just been sort of a glam party girl you know um, and so if you can do things that really start to build your confidence again um, whether that's maybe you've always thought about doing stand-up comedy or maybe you've always thought about writing a book uh, but I do think there's been a certain energy when I've had a breakup that I have then been able to sort of harness and use for for good. So certainly seeing friends and, and trying new things. Um, I, there's a friend of mine who did a, a list of, of things that she wanted to do, a bit like a bucket list um, after she had a breakup. And she was, yeah, hang gliding and golfing and <laughs> who knows what she was doing, but lots of adventurous, exciting sounding things that she you know, used to make herself feel really good and excited about life again and optimistic about new adventures. 
on the horizon. But I also think um, animals are amazing if as long as you're not allergic to them, but cats and dogs and cuddling cats and dogs will release oxytocin. And I'm, I'm a big, big advocate of uh, just walking the dog and the mindfulness of that. And if you don't have your own dog, go and go and borrow a friend's or do borrow my doggy or something, because I think dogs are wonderful. And I would say that that my dog, even though she was very challenging when she was a puppy, and I talk quite honestly <laughs> about that, now she's just the most wonderful part of our family and really has boosted uh, my mine and my partner's mental health no end thank you so much for listening rosie wilby's the breakup monologues is out now as is how to be sad the key to a happier life in paperback wherever you get your books please do rate review and subscribe tell your friends it all helps us to be able to make more episodes and get more great guests until next time thank you so much and i hope you're doing okay <laughs>